till death do us part. A lot of us have said those words at the end of our vows, till death do us part. Well, times are changing, and, uh, and so often are these words from uh, John Harlow. He's a writer, Sunday Times out of London. He says, some people are adjusting the ending of their wedding vows. And here are some examples. I'll stay with you for as long as our love lasts, uh, for as long as our marriage shall serve the common good, or even until our time together is over. I mean, things are changing. I mean, people are not as uh, committed in terms of marital conflict. Um, divorce, the ending of a marriage, is, is, uh, is becoming obviously much more commonplace. A number of reasons why. Uh, the, the legal ease, if you will, with no-fault divorce, back in the 70s have made uh, divorces very easy to acquire. There's also a social acceptability before um, divorce might ruin a career. Now it seems to be able to liberate some. Uh, there's also this, this personal belief that it is a moral right to be happy in marriage. In other words, marriage has been redefined now in terms of um, a pathway to personal happiness and fulfillment. And when that doesn't occur then there is justification to no longer be in the marriage. Uh, so things are definitely, um, yeah, they're definitely changing. Uh, even a recent last year and a half, Tipper and Al Gore, you know, the vice president during the Clinton administrations and a, and a presidential candidate, um, divorced after 42 years, 42 years, they called it quits, and uh, Jerry Zaslow, a writer in the New York Times, kind of speculated on why after all those years. And here's what he writes. He says, the Gores aren't offering explanations, but marital therapists and divorce attorneys say the, break of the breakup of long-term marriages is routine these days for reasons of longevity, economics, the cravings for happiness and self-expression that were less prevalent in previous generations. People are living longer, and they're less willing to spend their last decades with someone who loves them unfulfilled. At the same time, working wives are less dependent on husbands for financial support, and husbands have Viagra and other new incentives to find other romances. And so things are really changing. I mean, the world has made peace with divorce at a level unrivaled, at least in the last number of generations. So what do we do with divorce? I mean, what does the Bible say about it? Does, does God speak to it? What does Jesus say? Is it right? When is it right? Should you get remarried? I mean, these are questions we need to ask. It, it may surprise you to know that divorce was very common in Jesus' day. Now, I know most of us in here have been touched by it, have walked through it, have experienced it. And so I want to try to steer clear of two errors that preachers often make. Some want to treat it very flatline, very simply, very legalistically, and they don't want to understand or they don't understand the complexities and the difficulties and the pain associated with divorce. Other preachers see the pain and the difficulty, and so it causes them not wanting to offend to kind of soften God's word on this issue of divorce. And it's caused a lot of confusion in the church. I, I, want to do, I want to do two things. I want to uphold the value and the sanctity of marriage. I, I want to uphold it because it is being eroded in our culture. And yet at the same time, I want to remove the stigma associated. Th this idea that somehow divorce is the unforgivable sin. 
as if you become a second class in Christian citizenry. I, I want to try to find that balance of grace and truth. We're going to try to do it um, out of Matthew 5. Now, Matthew 5, 31 and 32, are, it's like a summary of Jesus' teaching on divorce. It's explained more so in Matthew 19, verses 3 to 9. So we're going to look at both. And, and here's what I want to do. I, I want to try to explain uh, Jesus' correction of a lax attitude towards divorce. First, Jesus is going to correct some false views on divorce. Then he's going to clarify when divorce is appropriate. He's going to clarify these things for us. And then he's going to, I think, challenge us, uh, at least the Christian, to say, here's what a God-centered marriage is, and this is the antidote. This is the, this is the means by which we confront a culture that is comfortable with divorce. So if you will, turn with me to Matthew 5, 31 to 32, and then I'm going to jump right to Matthew 19, and I'll be reading verses 3 to 9. So Matthew 5, 31, 32, and then we'll just flip forward 14 chapters to Matthew 19. So Matthew 5, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, go with me, if you will, to Matthew 19. This is a, a, it's a, it's a conflict now he has with the Pharisees, and it will kind of give a little bit more flesh to this discussion. 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So you have here, this is the third week in a row, we have three more, where Jesus is directly confronting the Pharisees' kind of minimalistic, but kind of this legalistic rendering of the Scriptures. And he's challenging their lax view. You know, here they come up to him and they ask him, they say, is it lawful to divorce a man's wife for any cause at all? And of course, what Jesus does, he doesn't answer the question directly. He simply says to them, haven't you read from the beginning, this is what God wanted, this is what God created, male and female, to be in one flesh until death will they be parted. They come right back to Jesus and say, well, then why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And of course, Jesus says he didn't command you at all. He it's a concession. He allowed you because of the hardness, the bigoted, the arrogance, the unforgiveness in your hearts. Now, I want, to, I want to pull this apart a little because I want us to see what this concession was because a lot of people go to this and they say, see, this is justification that we can divorce for any cause. And I don't think that's the case. 
So I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy 24. That's where this passage is drawn from, where Moses is speaking to the people of Israel. And I'll read it to you. You can turn there later if you want, but uh, Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Then the former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Now, now let me try to explain this. Moses is not advocating, he's not endorsing, he's surely not commanding a divorce. Moses is rather controlling an abominable situation where a man in a male-dominated culture finding some indecency, could just dismiss his wife and divorce her. Um, This wasn't over adultery. This wasn't over immorality, because in the Old Testament, immorality was punishable by stoning. So it's over frivolous, secondary issues. It it, it was a terrible situation. Um, And what Moses is doing is he's trying to prevent divorce. He's trying to slow divorce down. He's trying to to prevent hot-tempered men who blow a gasket and in threatening their wives will dismiss them, either because they can't control their anger or they can't control their lust. They they may want another woman. You find some indecency, you bring up the trumped-up charges, you issue the certificate of divorce, send her away so you can bring a younger woman in. And Moses is trying right now to protect women. He's trying to say, no, there has to be a witness to the indecency, and this indecency has to be witnessed and then a certificate given to the woman to show that she hasn't been unfaithful to the marital covenant so that she can be married again, which is often how women were taken care of through marriage. Obviously, they didn't work. And so Moses is trying to prevent that, trying to protect women. It was a horrible situation, horrible situation, a, 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 a perversion of what God meant when men were to lead. Now, the day wasn't much different in Jesus' day. So in Jesus' day, you have these uh, two schools of thought. Uh, The one school is conservative, that you could find some indecency and dismiss your wife, but the indecency had to be something significant, like some breach of marital trust. Not adultery, but some breach of marital trust. There was another school of thought that was much more liberal, and they would allow indecency to be really anything from criticizing of the in-laws. My mother's in town today, so I just said, I threw that out there for my wife. No, it's true. (laughs) Criticizing of in-laws, burning a meal, having bad breath, or losing the beauty, this is all in rabbinical writings, losing the beauty that they once had. This was exactly what was in Malachi's day. In Malachi's day, God rebukes the people of Israel for these men breaking faith with women of their youth. And what we understand is that these men wanted a younger bride. So they'd find an indecency and break it so they could have a younger woman. Is it not surprising that the two passages before this had to do with anger and lust? And here is where we are now. And so Jesus rebukes them. This, the liberal view, 
was the prevalent view in Israel at the time. And so Jesus rebukes them because they're trying to abide by the law and getting what they want. They weren't really interested in obeying the law. They're interested in getting a new bride or getting out of a difficult marital conflict. And I want to remind you, this is just natural man's way of looking at the scriptures. And this is really part of the evangelical church. I, I want to caution us that we can tend to micromanage the word, to, to get down into the details of the word so as to find an excuse to do what we want to do. It's kind of like, you know, failing to see the forest from the trees. Remember, God's law was given to us not simply to obey in the abstract. God's law, God's word is given to us so as to protect relationships. And when we're obeying the law and causing harm to the relationships, then we're missing the point of the law. And so when the law surrounding marriage is being utilized to advance my own personal desires at the expense of my bride or my husband, we've missed the point of the law. And I would caution all of us that we can be very, very much a letter of the law person instead of a spirit of the law when we can be benefited by it. That's just a warning. We don't want to read the scriptures so atomistically that, oh yeah, here's my loophole that I can now do what I want to do. So Jesus corrects them. Here's how Jesus clarifies his teaching on divorce. Look with me, if you will, back at 532. He says, But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is a very hard word. I'm, I'm thankful that God has given us such hard words that we are driven to trust and his leadership in leading us to understand it. Because what Jesus seems to be saying here is that he is prohibiting divorce among the believers, except in the case of this word sexual immorality. Now, this word is porneia. Porneia, you may hear pornography from porneia, and it would be true, it is the root, but porneia is much broader and deeper than pornography. Porneia has the understanding of all kinds of sexual immoralities from prostitution to incest, to all kinds of sexual perversions. But it has to do with intercourse. It has to do with the act, not just the attitude. And in that case, Jesus says that divorce is to be prohibited except in this case. Now, this doesn't demand it. It doesn't demand that you have to get a divorce if a spouse has committed immorality but it approves it, or it permits it, I should say. So in contrast to the lax teaching of the Pharisees that would grant a divorce for any kind of indecency, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Divorce is permitted only in the case of sexual immorality. Now let me explain what he goes on to say. Because if you notice, he says, if anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Now, what's he saying here? Well, Jesus is saying that this union of man and woman in marriage is not dissolvable of other sins, but it is with immorality. Now, if a man divorces his wife, he's really speaking to the man in this passage here. If the man divorces his wife and it isn't due to sexual immorality, and he gives her a certificate of divorce, she gets married again and then consummates the marriage, 
she and the man that she married is now committing adultery because the first marriage was never void in God's eyes. And the man is guilty for initiating the divorce, putting her into that situation. That's what he means when he says that he makes her commit adultery. Because in God's eyes, that marital union has not been dissolved. Now, interestingly, uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark don't have this exception clause, which is kind of interesting. So their, their version would be any man who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery if she marries another man. There's no exception clause. And so scholars think, well, is Matthew softening things? Did Matthew just get along and it's 40, 50, 60 years past Jesus and say, hey, this doesn't work. We've got to have an exclusion to be able to get divorced. And so he kind of adds this to the text. Well, don't think so. I think what, what others would feel and I would agree with is that they assumed it. In other words, Matt, Mark and Luke assumed that in cases of immorality, a divorce was granted. And the reason they would have assumed it is because in the Old Testament, if you were to commit adultery, you would be stoned, thus ending the marriage, thus dissolving the marriage, and the, the innocent party would be able to get married because that union is now finished. Now, in the New Testament, that union is not dissolved by death, but by divorce. Now, you may be thinking, this sounds so harsh. It seems so antiquated. It seems so old school. We've got to move on from this. And, and, and it is a hard word. It is a hard word. L let me just try to point out to you, though, like a couple of reasons why it might be so hard. And number one, in terms of divorce, uh, divorce, divorce denies... Uh, the intention of God for marriage. Let me explain what I mean by that. When God instituted marriage, it was to display a covenant faithfulness between the husband and the wife that God has for the people. And, and, and when divorce comes in, it's denying that faithfulness of God, which is to be expressed between the husband and the wife. God's intention is that this marriage would endure until death as a constant display of God's faithfulness. And divorce ruptures that and distracts us from seeing that. You know, if you were to read later in Malachi 2, uh, verses 13 to 16, you would see this problem that the Israelites had, and that was related to divorcing their wives of youth. Let me read it for you. He says this to the people. This is God. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you've broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit. And do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. In other words, Malachi the prophet was coming to them and saying the reason God's not hearing you, the reason God is opposing you is because you're breaking faith. God made them one. The oneness in marriage is a divine act through the power of God's spirit. And so as God is fashioning a couple into one and they tear asunder that which what God has brought together, God is witnessing against that because he is to be glorified in that faithfulness in that covenant relationship. 
So that's the, that's the first reason that it seems Jesus is being so strong. Secondly, divorce denies the power of the gospel. So the church proclaims this message that the vilest of offenders can be reconciled to God through faith and that God will reconcile them. And yet when the two Christians cannot reconcile within the context of marriage, what does that say about the power of, of the gospel? Is it somehow, do the kids see, is it somehow not able to save mom and dad, but it's able to save the vilest offender? So it creates confusion. And, and then thirdly, divorce, I think, is, is Jesus has taken a strong stand here because of the pain it brings. I mean, we all know this. We know the pain associated with divorce. Even the word itself, the Greek word for divorce is to cut away or to cut loose or to tear loose. You can imagine that one flesh and the tearing apart of one flesh into two fleshes. I mean, it is painful, not just among the couple, but the family. And, and not just the family, but the children. The children have suffered. You know, we used to believe this, what I think is naive, and, uh, and just false that the kids are bettered when you have divorced friends rather than marital enemies. And that was the rhetoric going forward. Judith Wallerstein uh, did probably one of the largest studies of children of divorce, and she took 131 children out of 61 families. And these were families that had children between two and six years of age. And she followed them for 25 years to track what was the effect on them. And as you can imagine, there was a higher probability of alcohol and drug abuse, of depression, anxiety, dropping out of school, and troubled relationships that they got into. Now, that's the struggle that I think we, wanna, we don't want to fall into that trap of thinking where they're better off. Now, so Jesus is trying to confront a culture that is comfortable with divorce. And he's trying to say that immorality will break, breach the union. Doesn't necessitate a divorce, but it does permit a divorce. Now, there's another passage in 1 Corinthians 7, which also speaks about an exception to divorce, and that is in desertion between the believer and the unbeliever. And I don't have time to cover that. That's another very complicated passage. Uh, but what I want to say is, is simply this, particularly to, the, to those of us who have struggled through divorce, I do want to remove the stigma associated with this that the church has often put on divorced people. Um, we are all sinners here. And many of us have marriages that are in far greater disrepair that haven't ended in divorce than those that have. And, and so when I look at this topic, I, I have a degree of sympathy and compassion. Without lowering the sanctity of marriage, I recognize that my sins are great. And I, I know that my actions in marriage uh, can often be profoundly destructive as well. And so, and so I, I want to I just remind us that the gospel is sufficient even for those who have struggled through and going through divorce. I was helped by what Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was this preacher in London in the mid-20th century, Westminster Chapel, he wrote this about this kind of situation when you're dealing with divorce and even the adulterer. He says this, On the basis of the gospel and in the interest of truth, I'm compelled to say this, 
Even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It's a terrible sin, but God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has committed or has sinned himself or herself outside the love of God or outside his kingdom because of adultery or divorce. No, if you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin, cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven. And I assure you of pardon. It's the balance we want to try to strike. We want to have a strong view of marriage, but we do not want to consign those who have struggled through divorce with a burden that the gospel relieves. So Jesus first corrects this idea of a lax view of divorce. He clarifies his teaching on divorce. Uh, And then he challenges the rest of us regarding our marriage. If you look back with me, notice in, back in 19 now, Matthew 19, in verse 4, he asks the Pharisees, has he, he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Of course, this is a sharp rebuke to the religious. Have you not read? Of course they've read. That's all they do. They're scribes. They're Pharisees. They study the law. They read, 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 read. It's another warning to us. You can read and you can read and you can read. And you never see it. God help us. When we read, ask the Spirit of God to open your eyes to what you're reading so that you'll understand. I was reading this morning in in preparations for the tabernacle. I've been reading the Word for years. And I, I read in the Scripture this very morning about how they were called to beat the cinnamon and they were called to beat the aromatic Uh, cane and they were to beat other spices and distribute it around the tabernacle and it just opened my eyes so can you imagine the sweet smell that would have been in the presence of god as the priests were offering sacrifice i'd never seen that i know i've read it had never seen it and just touched i can just imagine in glory just the smells god's even even interested in the smells of sweetness in the presence of god didn't see it He said, have you not read? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. The first thing for the marrieds here, God has created this institution of marriage. God has made masculinity. God has made femininity. God is spirit. He is not male or female, but he has created to express his glory through maleness and femaleness, and it's in the context of marriage. It's God's model that that society was to be bettered, and our joy would be increased. So there's a model of marriage that God has created, male and female, together. That's why marriage will always be of a man and of a woman. That's how God has ordained it. Number two, notice what he says next. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and his father and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That marriage is to be this exclusive, intimate union that they are to leave the father and mother, that there is to be a separation, a tearing away of that prior relationship while significant, not permanent. Tearing away, and they hold fast. This idea of one flesh, you can hear the sexual overtones to it, the spiritual overtones to it, the emotional overtones, the oneness that is to take place in a growing fashion with marriage. This idea of a mutual, exclusive, intimate union. It is the highest relationship. It is higher than you have with your parents will ever have. And folks, in an evangelical community, 
where we are just overwhelmed with joy over our children. The children are not central to the marriage. I, I cannot tell you, this is disastrous. And, and, and women, I'm speaking, I would have you really ask your husbands and say, do you feel the kids come before you? Just ask them. And men, if you have the courage to say it, I would ask you to speak the truth. Because oftentimes the kids become central, and that is an imbalance. It is the husband and the wife. I remember the look on my children's face when they said to me, do you love us more than you love mommy? I said, not even close. Not even close. They were aghast that I would say such a thing to them. And I was like, sorry, I'm raising you to send you, and you, and it can't come soon enough is what I wanted to say. But they go out with a financial blazing trail, I'll tell you. I, I said, it's one flesh. We are raising you so that you now will experience that intimate, exclusive union that God has intended for you and your spouse. But not only is it intimate, exclusive, it's to be permanent. Notice what he says in the very following line. He says, they're no longer two but one flesh. That nakedness and unashamedness And folks, I really would ask you to ask yourself, to speak to your spouse, what level of oneness do we enjoy with one another? What level of oneness do I have sexually with my wife? What level of oneness do I have? What I mean by oneness is a mutual joy and satisfaction, a clarity of communication, a level of happiness. Not just sexually, financially. Does your wife feel cared for? Does... Do you guys have a common agreement on this is what God's given us and this is how we're going to use it? Uh, emotionally, you know, does she consider you her best friend? And not your only friend. There's many relationships, but this is a primary relationship that there is to be a nakedness without shame. I, I, I would encourage you to really think through that because if you don't have that growing, it's hard to think of permanence. And what he says here is, that uh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It's interesting here that the marital union that God has created, it says in Malachi that the spirit forms into one, but it's God through the death of a spouse that ends it. God is the initiator of the oneness, and he is the one that stops the oneness by death. So God drawing home one. ends the union. There's a permanence to it. There's a, there's a completeness to it. So, so what Jesus is doing here is he's clarifying the nature of this union that we are to be pursuing. It won't come in a day, but it comes in a lifetime. Now, I just have a word. I want to, talk to, the, I want to speak to the marrieds on just a few issues. I, I want to touch and digress just for singles, for just a minute, a, a word to singles. And I would say this, that that this is the paradigm that you're holding up, that you are to think about as you contemplate someone that you will enter into this marital partnership with and this marital covenant with. Um, You want to be praying for your spouse uh, that you may not even know yet. Uh, You want to be drawing the community in, your parents, your family, close friends, Christians. The one requirement that seems to be in the Lord is that you marry in the Lord. You marry a man or a woman that is evidencing regeneration. 
They've been born again, and you can see the fruit. I would ask you to avoid what we now call kind of this evangelistic dating. Well, I really like the guy. I'm sharing the gospel with him. He's really open to the faith. He's coming to church now, and he's even reading his Bible. I can't tell you how many marriages I've seen enter that way, and it is never proven to be good. So that's evangelistic dating. Don't date them if they're not a Christian. Befriend them, encourage them. But, but thinking that if I move into a relationship with them, making them open to the gospel, the Spirit of God can convict the man apart from your dating. Salvation belongs to God. It doesn't need your dating to move him into faith. But to the, to the marrieds here, I would say this. I want to remind you of a few things in light of this because, because your marriage is going to be the witness of God's greatness to a divorce-comfortable culture. Your marriages will do it. Now, now, you can display just chaos and tragedy or you can display that oneness and joy and covenantal faithfulness that will make other people long to have what you have. So let me remind you of a few things. First, I would remind you to remember the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is not simply to be happy. I hope you're happy. I'm very happy. I think happiness is part of marriage, but that's not the primary purpose. What God has ordained marriage to do in your maleness, in your femaleness, is to complete one another and to encourage one another in preparation to seeing Christ the one that we all marry, the one in whom that we'll all be joined. In other words, the spouse is the key relationship that is going to help you be prepared to see Christ. Do you realize that? That you are to intersect your spouse with the purpose of getting them to be ready to see Christ. Now, this is done in the context of marriage, in the difficulty of marriage. You know, marriage is very, very difficult. If you don't believe me, you can come forward and ask Carol later. Marriage is not an easy thing. But it's in the marriage, and it's in the difficulty of two sinners rubbing against each other, whereby we see our need for the gospel. I thought I was the nicest, laid-back, easy-going guy before I got married. I could have been a surfer. I was so calm and easy. I get married. I have children. I'm a control freak. I have OCD. I, I want to I get things nailed down. There's all kinds of stuff that bubble out of me that I didn't know was there until I got in this relationship with Carol. And she didn't think I was a god like I thought I was. And that's when the problems began. So what happens is in relationships, the conflict comes Conflict is not your enemy. Conflict reveals things in us that God wants to bring the gospel to. And so if we can accept the fact that we're not perfect, if we can accept the fact that it's in relationships that conflict bubbles up, it reveals to me the nature of my sin, it moves me to the gospel to seek forgiveness and grace so that he by his spirit might change me in my relationship. And for Carol, so remember this, that the purpose of marriage is not simply to enjoy this life, but to prepare one another to see Christ. I'd also ask you to remember the mystery of marriage. The mystery of marriage is the gospel. When you think of the gospel, what I mean by the gospel is that God has unilaterally moved with grace towards men and women by giving a son who would bear our sins and, and suffer 
wrath of God for our sins that by faith we might be drawn back to God. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is faith in God's goodness giving us Jesus so that Jesus can lead us through the Father bearing our sins as a substitute. Now, when you're overwhelmed with that, you see your sin, you see the great provision of God in Christ, then all of a sudden marriage is beginning to be built upon that gospel. In other words, married people are sinners. You're going to sin against each other consistently and regularly. And in this conflict of sinning against one another, we need to know the power of the gospel. So we have passages like Matthew 18. And Matthew 18 is where God has forgiven me this unfathomable debt. Of course I can forgive Carol when she sins against me or when I sin against her. The mystery of marriage is understanding the gospel and then out of the power of the gospel, I'm able to forgive. I'm able to forgive. Forgiveness is not natural. It is not a natural event. For you to go to a natural, to go to a a non-Christian and say, you ought to forgive, they should ask you why. Well, you just ought to. Well, why? They hurt me. I'm not going to put myself in harm's way again. It doesn't make sense to forgive unless you know God and his powerful gospel. And thirdly, I would ask you to remember the language of marriage. The language of marriage is how you speak to and about your spouse. Some of us are real nitpickers. We're critical. We're harsh. We speak in very, very sharp tones to one another. It will not create a oneness in marriage. We ought to be encouraging one another the grace of God, what I see changing in Carol, how I see God moving in Carol. I want to give word to that. I want her to know that I see it in her life. But not just speaking to your spouse, but about your spouse. Many of us are very quick to be critical about our spouses. And we'll do it in a public forum like Facebook. Or we'll do it in groups. Very, very harmful to one flesh to criticize your spouse. Even though it's sometimes it's sarcastic and joking. The reason sarcasm is so hurtful is it has to have truth in it. And do you know what the word sarcasm means? It's actually two Greek words. It's the tearing of flesh. Sarx is flesh. This, it's a ripping flesh. So I would be very mindful about how we're sarcastic with one another. The language of marriage includes praying for one another. One flesh is not going to come by osmosis. You guys were called to pray together. Husbands, you're lifting your wives before God for grace and mercy every day. And ladies, you're doing that for your husbands. And I would encourage you to do it together so that I can hear, so that I love it when Carol prays for me. I pray for her. I get to hear her approach God Almighty for the benefit of my soul. That encourages me greatly. I know it will you. And and, and then last, I would say, I want you to remember the power of marriage. And this is really important. That is the role of the spirit marriage. God has given us the Son. He sent the Son to die for our sins that we might be redeemed. The Son said, it's good that I go away because I'm going to send another comforter, Jesus being the first comforter, the Spirit being the second comforter, and this comforter is going to dwell within us and lead us to understand and understand the grace that God's given to us. The Spirit for the Christian is the one that makes real all of this stuff that God's done for us. The Spirit of God is the one that that opens our eyes to the beauty and the power of God. He gives us power to walk in line with God's Word. That's what it says in Jeremiah 31, that I'm going to give you the Spirit, and the Spirit's going to move you to obey my laws. I need the power of the Spirit to move me to obey. Sometimes Carol and I may be at loggerheads. We may be at cross wits with each other. I need the Spirit to give me the power 
to move with grace in leading her to con- in kindness and not frustration in her to me. So the Spirit of God is essential to help us fight the greatest enemy to marriage, which is our self-centeredness. And the Spirit moves us past that to give forgiveness and love and mercy. So this is a great passage. It's a hard word. I've been praying and we've been praying that you would not feel condemnation, but you would feel conviction, that you would be encouraged at this model of marriage. Jesus corrects a lax view of marriage. You see that with the Deuteronomy passage. He makes clear what Moses was doing. He then clarifies Divorce for the Christian has to involve that idea of sexual immorality. Now, I know there's a thousand different situations, perhaps, to to your own story. We are always willing to hear what is unique to your situation. I know every situation is unique. I believe that. And so, those of you who are struggling... Please come forward, see an elder, see myself. I, I would love to talk to you about that. I, I know it's a complex issue. Life is complex. But Jesus does then challenge us to have marriages that would display his glory in a culture that has embraced divorce. May we have marriages that shine as lights in a very darkened world. Let me pray for us, and then we'll have a few minutes, and Ray's going to close us uh, in prayer. And I would ask you to pray loudly so that we can hear you and be encouraged in it and join with you. And I ask you to pray briefly that others may uh, join us as well.